0: I can tell you that hearing my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, after you've been where I've been for the last three years, it'll do something to you. I sat over there wondering how I might possibly be able to start and then how I might possibly be able to finish these words, and that that reminds me, I need to share with you, it's as a privilege, as much of a privilege as it is to be here with you, I must tell you, I haven't done this I haven't preached a sermon, Dr. Estep, in about three and a half years. It's been so long, this pulpit Bible used to be black, it's rusty now. So, we're going to have to put up with a little bit of nonsense up here, I'm afraid. It's been about that long, and so, in other words, I have a lot to say. I've been holding in for that long. So, I hope you're not ready to go to lunch anytime soon. Uh, my wife, Kelly, and our children, Brooks, Kendall, Sydney, and Whitney... Would very much love to be here with me. We were not able to all make the trip back this time. Uh, they may be, in case, if you are, where's the camera? If you're watching on the Internet, y'all need to go to bed because it's a, it's midnight. It's past midnight after, after all where you live. So y'all go to bed. <clears throat> we have been living overseas for a little over three years now, and it's been a remarkable experience. Um, I'm really not able to say much about what we do there, and, and I'm sure if you think about it, you might understand the way the media is today and the way global communications are. Let's just say we live in a developing country, and for these last three years we've been developing parasites and paranoia and headaches and all kinds of illness. That's a joke, folks. you can laugh. <laughs> we've been very busy. What we've been doing is building relationships. Uh, trying to make a difference in some ways that you can, you can probably figure out, some things I don't need to say blatantly or publicly, but we're trying to make some inroads in a place that's very dark, trying to bring a little bit of light in. Now, let's get to the 200th anniversary of this church. Congratulations, First Baptist Church of Columbia, for 200 years of living the witness of Jesus Christ in this city, and this state. I want to give you a round of applause, because this is something to be proud of. 200 years. I understand there's a 200th anniversary committee. Would you, if you're on the 200th anniversary committee, would you raise your hands, please? I just want to see who you are. Did they come today? <laughs> Somebody raise your hand back here. Okay, good. good. Thank you so much. You know, they've done a good job, haven't they? And I would say, I know some of them personally, the reason they've done a good job, they served with distinction on the 100th anniversary committee. It's too late to revoke the invitation, by the way. I'm, I'm up here. 200 years, 1809. That's a long time, a long time ago. Let me give you some facts about that year and the years thereabouts. In England, George III was still on the throne. When this church was established, George III was still on the throne, even in spite of the fact that he had lost the colonies uh, 30 or 40 years before then. George III. Across on the continent, Napoleon. You've heard of Napoleon. Napoleon was attacking everybody and their neighbor, trying to take over. George Washington, the father of our country. George Washington had been dead for 10 years when this church was established. James Madison was the fourth president of the United States. And by the way, there were only 17 states in the United States when this church was founded. Now, speaking of James Madison, I I don't want to bring politics into the pulpit, but Dr. Estep, I understand you voted for him. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, he's looking at the watch over there. 1809. First Baptist Church was established. Uh, Such luminaries as Edgar Allan Poe were born, along with another one you know, more famous than Edgar Allan Poe. Abraham Lincoln had his beginning the same time this church did. And then there was the famous Charles Darwin. He's big over where I live. Now, I just have a question. I wonder how it went when Darwin died and met God and tried to explain the theory of evolution. You folks here, and I'll say, uh, I'm one of you, you know that, don't you? We First Baptist folks, over these 200 years, we've seen a lot of history. A lot of things come and go. uh, Lots of changes, wars, revolutions, evolution, disasters, all kinds of movements, politics, facts, trends, styles. And that's just inside the church. Outside the church. Change inside and outside the church. Change has been the only thing consistent And constant the whole way with one notable exception. The buildings have changed. The landscape has changed. The city has changed. The state has changed. The country has changed. The world has changed. And this church has changed. But praise God in heaven, one thing has not changed. The bedrock truth of the universe... That sounds high and lofty, doesn't it? The bedrock truth of the universe, which also is the 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 low-down, down-home, inside-the-gut truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, has not changed one iota since 1809, 1509, 509, 0009. And into eternity past, into eternity future. There are some things you cannot count on, but there are some things that you, under God, can count on. And that is the truth of the Word of God. The truth of the Word of God, reduced to writing by the agency of the Holy Spirit, giving us the glimpse into the past we need to understand where we came from, the vision of the future to understand where we're going, and enough truth right now to understand where we are and what we need to be and who we need to be in this time and in this place. Thank God something hasn't changed. Speaking of the Bible, if you have one, I want you to open it. I want you to find the book of Acts, please. The book of Acts, and you'll need to locate chapter 16. I haven't preached a sermon in so long. I've decided that I'm not going to preach one today. I'm just going to have a little talk with you, if that's okay. That takes a lot of the pressure off. I'm just up here talking, and some of you out there listening, I'm not sure what the rest of you are doing, but we're just going to move through a few things. This is not going to be complicated. It's not going to be high up here theology. It's going to be simple, just like the message... Of simplicity that was claimed when this group was started in 1809. It's still moving forward with the same simplicity today. In Acts chapter 16, we meet a man. Uh, this man was, in some ways, you could say, just a victim of circumstance. When he got up on the morning of the day in question, he had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, This fellow lived in a city called Philippi. Something was happening in Philippi. He couldn't understand what was going on. He was living in his own little world. But a fellow named Paul and a fellow named Silas, these guys, had come into Philippi, and they were bringing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were bringing it into a new place. It was a new message, a new word. People had not heard it before. It was something they wanted to think about and consider. Some of them uh, began to embrace the gospel. And this caused no small uproar. Long story short... Paul and Silas, after having upset certain people, wound up not just in jail, in the middle of the jail. If they could have been under the jail, that's probably where they were. So, this is the the background of the story. Paul and Silas in prison. And then you know the story, don't you? That night, an earthquake came. And as a result of the earthquake, somehow all of the prison doors were shaken loose and shaken open. They all just came open. And the shackles that were binding the prisoners, they fell off. Now, this was some sort of a miraculous event. Some say, well, I don't know if that was just a a regular earthquake or a a God-induced earthquake. Well, I don't know either, but God certainly used it to get some amazing things done. You know the rest of the story. The man who was in charge of the jail, the Bible doesn't tell us what his name was. This man, the earthquake uh, undoubtedly uh, roused him from sleep. He looked maybe out of the window of his warden's office or out of his bedroom window and saw, Lord, have mercy, all of the jail cell doors are open and all of the shackles have come loose. He went running outside to try to find out what was going on. His first thought was his boss. What is my boss going to say to me or do to me when he finds out I let everybody in my prison get out because of this earthquake? So he proceeded to to make immediate plans to commit suicide. He was afraid of what was going to happen when his boss found out that the prison had been empty. But then you know the rest of the story, don't you? Not long after he drew his sword with which to kill himself, he discovered, wait a minute, they're all in here. Paul hollered out, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Relax. Well, I don't know that he relaxed. But he started thinking about something else at that point. He was no longer afraid of his boss. According to what the Bible says, he apparently began to think of eternal issues. He was no longer worried about meeting his boss at this point. He begins to think about meeting somebody bigger than the boss. That's the big boss. The one who apparently sent the earthquake. The one who opened the doors and and dropped off the chains. And the one that led these men to stay put in the prison. This jailer, he was a man of power. Some of you have that. He was a man of influence, and some of you back there have that. He had responsibilities like you do. He had a job. He had a household, i.e. a family. He undoubtedly had employees. He had all these responsibilities weighing down on him, a lot like we do in this place. But he had something else. He had a question that he couldn't hold in. This question just came busting out all over. The question is found in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I live in a place where there are a lot of people who need to ask that question. They don't realize they need to ask that question. They figure there's got to be something good out there because all they see is bad. There's poverty like you wouldn't believe. Uh, There is a rampant. Uh, government-imposed atheism, and those that aren't hitched hitched onto the atheism wagon are over here in the animism wagon. They're worshiping trees and and rivers and mountains and all this. There's a lot of bad news where I live. And, And lots of folks over there need to be asking this question. The problem is they don't even know what question to ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? These folks where I live have no Christian background. I've spoken with people before to give a gospel witness. I've said, do you know about Jesus? And they don't even say, who is Jesus? They say, what's Jesus? What is a Jesus? I say, well, you can find out about Jesus in the Bible. Well, what's a Bible? The name of Jesus has never entered their ears. And the name of Jesus has never been formed on their lips. They don't know where to start. The gospel is so far away from them, they can't see it. But now you all who are living on this side of the world have a different problem the way I see it. Instead of the gospel being so far off that people can't see it, here the gospel is so close that people can't see it. In some ways, you could almost say there's too much of it. Christianity or a form of it exists everywhere, or at least it seems to. So many people on this side of the planet have heard so much of the gospel. Usually not the right part of it. They've heard so much of the gospel. They've seen so much work and dysfunction in and around churches. They've seen TV preachers. They've seen worldwide evangelistic ministries. They've seen the healers and all those little uh, uh, derivations of the gospel. And they don't understand where to find the truth in the middle of it. So here the good news is, is, is copiously available, but it's really easy to ignore something that's everywhere. That sounds sort of counterintuitive, but if something is everywhere and you see a little bit and you hear a little bit of it all the time, it's very easy to ignore it and just act like it's not there. Tune it out, as they say. A lot of folks here reject the gospel. Uh, they say it's too familiar. It's too easy. They want something exotic. They want something that's far out and far off maybe. The gospel, well, it's old-fashioned. It was my mother's faith or my grandmother's faith. It's been around so long. These old musty, dusty churches, some of them around here, people in the modern era think they have to find something new because the old just isn't good enough. Old-fashioned. Trite. In some people's minds, the gospel is canned and it's a limiting reality. You know that most of the people in this society who have heard the gospel or part of it, they believe that instead of the gospel being a force for liberation in their lives, that the gospel is actually something that will limit them. They don't want anything to do with limits. That's the hallmark of American society and I love it and God loves it. America, that is. But no limits. Don't fence me in. And that has to do with theology, too. So, over there, way over there on the other side of the planet, people live and die without ever knowing what the real question is that they should be asking. But what about here? Oh, people know what the question is here. But on this side, people are unwilling to ask it. Maybe they don't want to show vulnerability, maybe they don't want to show ignorance. Maybe they don't want to give somebody else an opportunity to speak truth or wisdom into their lives because that will make them look like they are personally deficient. They won't ask the jailer's question. They never get around to it. So distracted by this world and its wealth and entertainment and ambition that this question, if it is in the hearts and minds and on the tongues of people in these parts of the world, It just gets pushed back for a later day. I'll ask later. I'll worry about that later. I'll deal with God later when I perceive that I'm a little bit closer to having to to be confronted by Him face to face. So they don't want to talk about it. In all of Scripture, I can think of no other place besides this passage where life's ultimate question is so plainly asked and the beautiful, simple answer is so plainly given here is in Acts chapter 16, 31 and 32. They said, believe in the Lord, uh, 30 and 31. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And now the, the, the clincher, they said, that's Paul and Silas. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I wonder if the jailer sort of looked at him and said, is, is, that, is that it? Come get, are you sure? I mean, Do you have, a, do you have a, a book or a brochure? Or do you have a little CD I can take home and put my computer? This is, this is too good to be true. What do you mean believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household? Well, the testimony in the book of Acts doesn't share with us exactly what it was that Paul and Silas told the jailer. But reference is made to the fact that they did go on to explain some things. If you look in verse 32, the word says... They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And by the way, if you look in verse 33, the the end of this, He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Verse 34, He brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having what? Having what? Having believed in God with his whole household. Verse 32 says that they shared the word of the Lord with him. You know, sharing the word of the Lord on the other side of this world is a lot like sharing the word of the Lord on this side of the world. We tend to make it too complicated. I've experienced firsthand the value in presenting the gospel in a very, very simple and understandable way where I live. And you know what I think? I think that here in this culture where we've heard so much of it for so long, most of it wrong or just a partial truth, and partial truth is no good for you, that we ought to go back to the basics even in this culture and understand very simply the answer to the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you know how to answer that question? Well, we're First Baptist Church. Of course we know how to answer that question. We've been sitting in here for years, preacher. We know how to answer that question. Well, I hope you do. But maybe somebody watching by television doesn't know. Or maybe you know somebody at work or somebody at home or somebody at school. And you're trying to find that right way to share with them the simple gospel message. And You've got all these flip charts and and all these uh, complicated things you've tried to memorize about how to share Christ. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, we know there's a little bit more to it than that. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. There are a lot of false Jesuses walking around on the earth. As a matter of fact, in China right now, since you mentioned China, in China right now, there is a tremendous cult that is burning over all kinds of districts and regions of China. It's called Eastern Lightning. Eastern Lightning is the perversion of Christianity in which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has already come back to the earth. And she is living in one of the northeastern provinces of China. And there are people in China today who are worshipping this female Messiah figure who is speaking Chinese and eating with chopsticks somewhere, maybe right now. The simple gospel. Who is Jesus? you got to know who He is. And let's just think about this. What is the simplicity of the gospel? The simple message. If I want to share the gospel with someone over in China... And I probably shouldn't be saying any of this. I'll pull the plug on the TV or the Internet. Am I going to feed them the whole Bible? Am I going to say, open wide, he open wide, and try to cram it in their mouth or in their ears? I can't do that. I've got to boil it down to a few simple truths. And I recommend that same approach over here. Well, what is a simple truth? I'd, I'd say the essence of it boils down a little bit like this. There is a God. You said, everybody knows that. No, they don't. There is a God. What kind of a God is He? Well, the Bible says in the beginning God created. So God is eternal. He is a creator God. His fingerprints are all over the universe and they're all over you. And they're all over me. There is a God and He is only one. 1 Timothy. We're not looking to just trust me on this. 1 Timothy 2.5. The Bible says there is one God. He's perfect. Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. The Heavenly Father is perfect. We don't like the other part of that. You should be perfect because the Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the rest of that verse. So He's eternal. He's the Creator. He is singular, only one, and He is perfect. People need to understand that. Across the world and here, people need to understand that reality. Next, you are His special creation. We get all wrapped up in the mountains and the seas and the oceans and the skies and the planets and the stars and all these things that the Creator God made. We need to bring it down home and say, God made you. You were no accident. You were made on purpose by God who knew you before you were ever born. Created in His image according to Genesis. That means able to interact with, able to know Him. Knit together, woven together by by God. In your mother's womb. God did that. God arranged that. And He knows you, knows the number of hairs on your head. So there is a God. He's real. He's eternal. He's the Creator. He's perfect. And He made you. So far, so good. That's all good news. But there's bad news. The bad news is there's a tremendous show-stopping problem. The tremendous show-stopping problem is that every man, woman, and child on the planet has Uh, digressed, has sinned against God, has rebelled either knowingly or without understanding what they've been doing or what we've been doing. We have all, according to Romans 3, fallen short of the standard. But what's His standard? He is perfect, so His standard is perfection. We're not perfect. We've got a problem. We're separated from God. I don't enjoy giving the bad news of the gospel, but I do enjoy telling people on the other side over there, there is a God and see the face all light up and I say, but you know what? You don't know Him. You're separated from Him. You can't get with Him. He rejects the sin in your life and so you're separated from Him forever. Do you understand that? You know where I learned that? I learned that in the building next door. And the building next door to that. And the building that used to stand on this side. But folks over yonder, they don't have that background. And there are people that work with you and maybe live with you who don't have that background too. You need to tell them there's a God, perfect, eternal, creator, who made them. But we're separated, sinful, estranged, guilty, and condemned. But the good news is God's given us a solution to the problem. Anytime there's a problem, we need a solution. The problem is our sin. We're separated from God. For how long? Forever. But God gave a solution. What motivated the solution? What motivates the solution is the love of God. And the love of God is the salient, outstanding fact of the universe. The love of God. Because the love of God mitigates the wrath of God, answers the judgment of God, The love of God provides us a way to come back together with the one from whom we have been separated for all eternity. This is what the gospel is. This is what First Baptist Church is all about. It's what I do where I live. Until I get back and they hear this sermon, I get kicked out. Now, the love of God. 1 John 4, 8, a little part of that verse says, God is love You want to define God for somebody? He's the perfect, eternal creator who made you, and the outstanding feature of His character is His love for humanity. What is love's response to our problem? Can you say the name Jesus with me? Jesus, say it. Jesus is the answer to the problem of our sin. For some of you, I've heard this a thousand times. Well, praise God, I hope you hear it two thousand times before it's all said and done. But knowing things the way I know them, which isn't with great wisdom, I know enough to know sitting in this room probably is somebody who doesn't understand this stuff. And by God, when I get on the airplane next week, I don't want to say I left anybody in this room who hadn't heard it clearly at least once today. The love of God sent Jesus to live and to die for us. You know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 sort of gets cut off of that. But you know, I think we ought to memorize 16 and 17. 17 tells us, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The love of God in Jesus Christ. Whether you're on that half of the world and this half of the world or parts anywhere in between, the message is the same, the message is simple, and your life can be changed if it needs changing and if you're willing to accept it and to admit it. got to check my watch. The love of God is offering to you a solution to your problem. Jesus Christ came. Who is Jesus? His miracles proved He was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ came. What was He all about? He was all about love. How do you know that? The proof of His love was that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross for you. And the proof of His power? Well, there was a lot of that. But ultimately, the proof of His power is found where? In the empty tomb. A dead Jesus can't help anybody. But he can help you because he's alive. A fellow named Tom Nelson heard a story once. And I heard it when he told the story. He met a man once who had a couple of elderly aunts. These two aunts had grown up in small town Mississippi in the 1940s. Everybody was broke in those days and in that place and uh, sort of a local bartering system had had started up. You know, if you had vegetables, you'd take the vegetables down the road to the man that had uh, flour or sugar and you'd trade. Or if you had firewood, you could trade it for clothing, this kind of thing. You know how that works. And there was a man who used to come into town and used to trade with these two little girls' daddy a lot. Used to get together and exchange uh, some goods for other goods, commodities for other goods. And this man would come to town. He often brought his little son with him. This little fellow loved to ride in town. Used to, loved to ride with daddy and really loved to get to this house where the two little girls lived. He really liked these little girls. liked to play with them, liked to talk with them. The problem was these little girls didn't like him. In fact, they were downright mean. They would see the car coming up the driveway and they would go hide. He would get out of the car looking for them, calling their names, and and they would peek out from around the house or from around the bushes and they would maybe throw a little rock at him and get his attention. Then when he looked, they'd run and hide. They called him names and they just all around made the poor little fellow feel bad to the point that he decided to stop going with his daddy in this place. Well, these little girls used to use his name in a little talk they would throw back and forth about this fellow. He was a little strange, and they didn't like him. One would say to the other, You're going to marry Elvis. You're going to marry Elvis. This was Tupelo, Mississippi, and the man who came to trade was Vernon Presley. The girls would talk with each other, and one would say, I'm going to grow up, and I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. And the sister would answer, oh, no, you're not. You're going to grow up and you're going to marry Elvis Presley and live for the rest of your life. To which the sister would look and say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to get out of here. And I'm going to marry somebody rich and famous. (laughs) Love offered and rejected. Beware lest you reject the love of a father's only son, because he just might be the king. Let's bow together and pray. Heavenly Father, our problem is a simple one. We need to be rescued from ourselves and from this world and from eternity. The solution is as simple when, Lord Jesus, we understand we need to accept your advances, accept your overtures. We need to come to you in simple faith that you came for us, you lived for us, you died for us, and you are raised for us. Lord Jesus, if there are those in this room who know that they know that they're yours, and they need to rededicate themselves to following You, please bring them forward during the invitation. Father, if there are others who really aren't sure whether or not they belong to You, they think maybe they do or they think maybe they did, but they don't know, dear God, today what the answer is, I pray You would bring them forward to talk with someone who can help them. But Father, most of all, I pray that if there are those in this room who are seated, seated in their seats right now, have never asked the question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? I pray, Lord Jesus, that the simple message of the gospel, the simple message of the Bible, the simple message of the church would ring loud and clear. They must come and believe in Jesus. Father, motivate them to come down this aisle and meet with someone who can show them how to be born again to an everlasting life. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand, we'll sing our hymn invitation. There will be ministers at the front to receive you and to help you as you make your spiritual decisions and commitments.